Welcome to Inside Maine. This is Angus King, and we're always here talking about issues that are of significance to Maine. And today we're going to talk about one that means a lot not only to Maine, but to all of New England, all of the East Coast for that matter. And that's the proposal by the United States Department of the Interior to open up pretty much the entire eastern seaboard to oil and gas drilling. My first guest is also a good friend, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, who is, I would have to say, the leading voice on climate change and environmental-related issues in the Senate. He just completed his 200th speech on the floor of the Senate on the issue of climate change. He has a poster that everyone is familiar with that says, it's time to wake up. And he is sounding the alarm. Sheldon, this is a kind of an immediate issue. I got to ask first, what was your first thought that crossed your mind when you heard the proposal to open up the East Coast oil drilling? My jaw dropped and I said, you have got to be kidding. They clearly have zero sense of what our states are like. And they also have zero sense of very recent history. Do you remember that President Obama had the ill-begotten idea to open up oil drilling exploration off the southern Atlantic coast? And in those red states, coastal communities, coastal counties rose up virtually unanimously from Norfolk to St. Augustine and said, no way. It was called the Resolution Revolution, and mayors and county commissioners lost their jobs if they got on the wrong side of popular fury at the prospect of offshore drilling. So, my God, if this thing's going to blow up in your face in South Carolina— Good luck, pal, off of Rhode Island. <laughs> well, and Florida got themselves out almost immediately. Yeah, which if you're a lawyer, as I am, and you're trying to put that into the context of how administrative decisions have to be made through a lawful process, the idea that they're on the one hand serious about this and on the other hand going to let a state out based on a phone call with a governor – it's a little hard to explain to the rest of the states how this is a legal, lawful, administrative process. But that happened. I mean, it was literally it within days yep. when Governor Scott of Florida said, we don't want this, and the Department of the Interior said, okay, Florida's out. There was even some thought that this whole thing was a phony and that it was just a setup so that Scott could make the call so that he could swagger around Florida and say, hey, I got us out of this stupid thing. Stop the oil drilling. Well, the other question is, is there oil out there? My geologists in Maine back when I was in Augusta basically said, don't worry, Governor, there's not much in the way of anything out there, so this won't happen. I think if there were likely reserves out there, then in the years when the oil industry was more effectively drilling and exploring, they would have been poking around out here. I think that their geologists know that this is, a, at very best, a long, long shot and that sets completely aside the question of whether the major oil companies, particularly the big four, don't already have more reserves than they could possibly claim. On land? On land, in the existing portfolios that they're reporting to their shareholders as being achievable reserves, I think there's a strong case to be made that those reserves aren't actually achievable, that they are oversupplied and that going out and spending a lot of money to buy more to add to their oversupply of reserves that they'll never achieve would be really bad business practice, setting aside that the renewables prices are now beating 
a lot of the fossil fuels. So it's a very expensive way to try to get oil into a market in which they probably already have too much and in which they probably can't compete on price. And by the way, I'm sure this was true in Rhode Island, but in Maine, the entire delegation immediately came out against it, both bipartisan, Republican, Democrat, independent. Instantly. Governor, I don't think one person has st- stood up for this well, our, idea. Well, our governor in Maine has spoken positively about it. I have to say that for the record. He has taken that position. But I think generally the delegations of all the states have come out against it, and yeah. most of the governors. And we were joined by the leaders of our fishing community, whether it was the trawlers, the recreational fishermen, the day boats, everybody in the fishing community had common cause saying, this is a really dumb idea. It's pretty hard to get the fishing community to have common cause about anything, but this was one this of them. Did it. <laughs> well, this did it. My analysis was pretty straightforward that the risks far outweighed the benefits, that the benefits at best would be short-term and a kind of blip and the costs in terms of if there was an accident to our coastal states would be long-lasting and really significant. Yeah. And particularly while there are other ways to generate revenues offshore, as Rhode Island has shown, by putting offshore wind facilities in place. We have steel in the water, we have electrons flowing to the grid, and it's first in the country, and we're very proud of that. And then not only that, though, is tourism industry. I mean, places like Newport, a spill would just be devastating. Devastating. And for us, the lobster industry is a huge part of our, it's a, almost a $2 billion, $1.5 billion a year industry. An oil spill, even though it maybe have cleaned up, there would be a kind of taint, excuse the yeah. use of that word, yeah. for years. No, consumers would have a question in the back of their mind about whether Maine lobster has hydrocarbons in it. And that's why, as I say, in my view, the risks far outweigh the benefits. Where does this stand? How realistic is this? What's the process? What are next steps? I think a lot of this was sort of political theater. It'll be interesting to see if the Department of Interior tries to follow up in any way It's not unusual in this administration for there to be a big announcement. We're going to do immigration. Mm -hmm. We're going to do a big bipartisan guns bill. We're going to do a meeting with North Korea. And then as time goes by, those things evaporate. You end up with nothing at the end of the day. So this might be something that just evaporates and they don't pursue it at all. They're going through the motions of taking public comment. The public comment in Rhode Island has been blistering, as it has been, I think, in most places around the country. We had a session in Maine. It was during a snowstorm, but a lot of people showed up. And I asked my office the next day, I said, so how did it go? I bet it was 95 percent opposed. They said, no, no, you're wrong. It was 100 percent opposed. So that's In Maine and Rhode Island, we know a really dumb idea when we see one. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. But the other issue here is it's a commitment to fossil fuel at a time when we're trying to get away from fossil fuel. That's the other. You're building billions of dollars worth of infrastructure for what appears to be a declining portion of our energy economy. And even if nothing were ever going to happen, it's a signal to everyone that this is an administration that will do anything for the fossil fuel industry. There is no limit. There is no gag reflex. There is not even much thought about it. I very much doubt that they had a formal request from the oil industry to do this. I think they just thought, well, this would be a really good thing to make our oil friends happy, so let's throw it out there. And now... I wouldn't be surprised if at Chevron and at Exxon, there were people who were rolling their eyes thinking, oh, great, we need this headache like 
Well, one of the provisions of the tax bill that passed in December was opening up the Arctic National Refuge for oil drilling and leasing. And I think having worked on that in the Energy and Natural Resources Committee, there's a real question whether anybody's going to bid. I agree. The news today is that they opened up a whole bunch of leaseholds in the Gulf, and they received bids on 1%, 1% of the parcels. 99% got no bid, and they came in pretty low. I think that the oil companies are seeing that they have more product that they already have identified in their reserves than they are likely able ever to realize. Well, and the other factor here is the price. Yeah. Drilling in Saudi Arabia, I believe it's about $10 a barrel to get the oil out of the ground. But if you're talking about offshore, it's more like 50 or 60 or something in that range. It's a much higher number. And that's why I think the price doesn't justify the investment in these hard-to-reach places. If you have to build new infrastructure to get the product away from the place in the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge where they want to drill, that jacks up the price more. It's very hard to find people who are willing to take that risk. I think that they're running into the economics of this in a big way. And in the long run, I think we're going to see, you and I are both advocates of renewable energy. As you said, one of the things that I don't think people have realized is the dramatic reduction in the cost of renewable energy. Yeah. I remember 20 plus years ago, a solar panel was something like $70 a watt, and now it's a buck and a half. And in fact, in Maine, people that I know that are in the business tell me that the cost of the installation of the solar panel is more than the panel itself. And that's only going to continue. Yep. Colorado, fossil fuel state. The State Public Utilities Commission has sought bids to take existing coal-powered plants offline. And the bids came in for a combination of renewables and storage so cheaply that brand new built renewable and storage is cheaper than continuing to run existing coal plants. So when you've got to the point where in fossil fuel Colorado, they're shutting down coal plants based on pure economics. economics. Yeah because the clean and renewable power is beating it on price, and you owe it to your ratepayers to give them that better price, a very new day has come. And I think that's an important point, because a lot of people still are sort of thinking of renewables as heavily subsidized, and they can't compete. And in reality, the price comparison, wind turbines are a lot cheaper than they were 10 years ago. Solar is, as I mentioned, gone way down. You mentioned a key word, though, that I think is at the heart of the next generation of energy, and that is storage. Mm -hmm. The issue, of course, with wind and solar is what happens when it's not windy or when it's dark. And storage is sort of the next frontier. In fact, Rick Perry, the Secretary of Energy, was before our committee last week, and he said storage is the big question mark. Yeah, he asked the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission to put through that dumb proposal to subsidize coal plants even more. And the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, A, refused to do that, and B, they just put out their electric energy storage rule, which require the grid operators around the country to develop their rules for paying for storage on their grids. There's one estimate that the storage rule is going to unleash 50,000 megawatts of electric power. Well, to put that in perspective, the entire New England grid is 30,000 megawatts. It's 35 million American homes is what that might unleash. So we're at a big, big turning point here. And by the way, for the fossil fuel industry to complain about the subsidies that helped bring wind and solar to market is one of the most 
false-fronted things you could possibly imagine. The International Monetary Fund has taken a look at what our effective subsidy is of fossil fuel just in this country. It's $700 billion a year. The International Monetary Fund is not stupid people, and they have no conflict of interest here. They're not working for anybody. When they think it's $700 billion a year, that's a pretty big subsidy, and that explains why those guys are so determined and so powerful to throw their weight around here in Congress. Well, it seems to me, and we'll end on this, that this is an opportunity for them who have been in the energy business for 100-plus years to get into other parts of the energy business, to, to take some of their resources instead of building offshore drill rigs in the Gulf of Maine, invest in storage yeah. and use some of their scientific talent to help us through some of these current technological challenges. When I was a kid, I can remember looking down on the plate at the bottom of the opening of the door of the car, and it said along that plate, Body by Fisher. Oh, I remember that. Sure. Yeah. And Fisher, as I recall, had been a coach and carriage manufacturer. And they made the transition from horse-drawn carriages to cars. And years, 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 decades later, when the automobile was the thing, you still had Body by Fisher. But a lot of harness makers went out of business in that transition. And I think the oil and gas companies need to figure out are they going to go the way of the harness manufacturers or are they going to try to be body by Fisher and get into the renewable energy business? It's an opportunity and they have the expertise and the wherewithal to do it. Sheldon Whitehouse, thank you. Uh, as always, it's been so hard to get you to take an unequivocal position on this. But, <laughs> but, but thanks for the work that you've done and uh, we'll continue to, to work together on, the, on these issues. Thanks, Angus. You're a great colleague and I'm really proud that you're in the Senate. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thanks very much. Stay with us. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes to talk to somebody in Maine about offshore drilling. Welcome back to Inside Maine. This is Angus King. Today we're talking about offshore drilling for oil and gas in the entire East Coast. The Department of the Interior has proposed opening up the coastline for oil and gas drilling. We just talked to Sheldon Whitehouse, who's the senator from Rhode Island, who's a leading voice for renewables and trying to do something to mitigate the effects of climate change, particularly oriented toward New England, but on the whole country as well. Now we're going to be talking to Tom Pico. And Tom is the executive director of Penobscot Bay Chamber of Commerce, which is a consolidation of what used to be Camden, Rockport, Lincolnville, and then Rockland, Thomaston. So it's that great mid-coast area. And Tom was at Make-A-Wish before that and took over at the chamber in 2015. So, Tom, tell me about what the reaction right on the coast was when this thing was announced. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me. I think uh, the reaction here in the mid-coast was certainly um, echoed around the state, I think. It's hard to find somebody who thinks this is a good idea, <laughs> you know, both locally and at the state level, you know, to have our legislature, both houses, come out unanimously opposed to the idea the legislature was unanimous? That's what I understand. That's and amazing. Of our congressional delegation as well, obviously, as you well know. I remember when I was sick once, the legislature voted to send me a get well card, but the vote was 72 to 70. So. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, no, that's quite a remarkable response. So I take it people in the Midcoast are talking about real impacts. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think uh, when you look at what drives our economy here, clearly um, tourism is a big piece of that, as well as the lobster industry. And both of those 
if something catastrophic were to happen, obviously there would be major impacts to both of those industries here in the mid-coast. Well, and both tourism and fishing and lobstering all are sort of mainstays of the economy up there. I think I read somewhere it's 85,000 jobs in the state. That's a big part of our economy. No question about it. And that's the same here. I mean, about 20% of the taxable sales just here in Knox County last summer were in restaurant and lodgings. And that's just scratching the surface of the whole impact of tourism. And of course, many tourists come here into our visitor centers in Camden and Rockland. And for many, the first question is, where can I find a lobster, right, where I want to have a lobster dinner while I'm here. So, I mean, the two are very closely tied together. And it's a big part of what people expect to find when they come to the main coast. They're looking for lots of things, but lobster is definitely close to the top of many people's list. And yet you're head of the chamber. The chamber's all about economic growth and jobs. So why would the chamber not be supportive of something that might create some jobs along the main coast? Well, I think it comes down to at what cost. I think we're looking at industries that are already thriving here and the potential risks of that, I think. And this is not certainly just our chamber. I think you're hearing this pretty convincingly up and down the East Coast that there's great concern about what we might give up in exchange for what you and Senator Whitehouse are talking about, relatively small potential benefit, if any, along the New England coast, that uh, there's some question about whether there's really a whole lot of oil to be had here. So to put what we have at risk is pretty significant. So it's really a question of weighing the benefits and the risks. Sounds like you came to the same conclusion I did, that the risks just outweighed the benefits. That For sure. Everything right. from lobster to tourism. And, you know, I think part of what we don't really fully realize is the importance of the main brand. And what an oil spill would do to that, even after it was cleaned up, or what the results could be sort of long-term, whether it's lobsters or beaches or just the coastline generally. No question. Well, as you well know, I mean, when you travel around the country and you tell people you're from Maine, there is a pretty much unanimous positive response about, oh, I'd love to go to Maine, or I've been there, and you hear their story about coming to Maine and what they love about it, and it conjures up images for people about what a great place it is to visit or to live. And so to potentially put those things at risk is pretty significant and I think more of a risk than most people would want to take. I like to point out to people that across the country right now, there are about four and a half or five million people thinking about their week in Maine next summer and we get to live here. (laughs) That's the good news. So tourism is a big part. Lobstering is a big part. No question. I mean, just in Knox County here, you had 50 million pounds of lobster coming ashore last year, which valued at over $120 million. So just here in our small sliver of the main coast, it's a huge impact. Both in Rockland, certainly uh, the self-proclaimed lobster capital of the world, a lot of our branding and marketing around the center of the main coast here is related to lobster, as well as other shore-related things, lighthouses, islands. I mean, you think of the number of islands that are year-round communities that you can access from here, Vinyl Haven and North Haven and Islesboro. The impact on those, both from those who live there and those who visit, would be staggering. Yeah, we don't want pictures on CNN of seagulls with oil on them and oil slicks in front of Pemaquid Light. Right, no, exactly. You know, another interesting statistic from the main office of tourism is that of those who came to Maine last year for an overnight visit, over three-quarters of those are planning to return within two years. So once people get a taste of what it's like to come to Maine, they want to come back. And I think that that's certainly a very positive thing. And again, it's not something that we want to unnecessarily jeopardize. Now, are you reflecting the views of your members? Is this what you're hearing? 
Our board has not taken a particular stand on this, but I think we haven't really felt the need. I think the community response, frankly, has been overwhelming, both from members in the area as well as from a state level and our congressional delegation, that it seems pretty clear that most folks are on the same page about this. It's just too big of a risk for us, given all that's wrapped up in our economy that's relative to the ocean. And the ripple effect is pretty significant as well. It's not just lobstering and tourism, but folks who work in those industries shop in our stores, buy cars at our car dealerships. And here in Thomaston, you have Brooks Trap Mill that manufactures a lot of the traps for the lobstering industry. So there's a significant employer there that really thrives off of the success of the lobster industry. So the ripple effect in our economy would be pretty significant as well. Well, I appreciate the way the community has responded. As I mentioned at Sheldon Whitehouse, there was a hearing up in Augusta that the Department of the Interior put on, and it was in the middle of one of these nor'easters that we had. But a lot of people showed up, and uh, apparently there was nobody that spoke in favor. At least that's the way I heard it. Right. I heard the same, and it doesn't surprise me. I think that there's been pretty widespread opposition to this idea. The other piece here that, as you're well aware, that our area hosts a lot of significant festivals that are related around the shore, like the Maine Lobster Festival, of course. And I know you're particularly fond of the North Atlantic Blues Festival, as well as we have Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbor Show, the Windjammer Weekend in Camden on Labor Day Weekend. So there's a lot here in terms of bringing tourists to our area, as well as those festivals themselves, giving back a lot to the communities, investing in nonprofit organizations in the area and sharing the benefit that they receive from those large festivals with the communities around us. I got to tell you, that Saturday night of the Maine Blues Festival in July, where they close the Maine Dragon, Rockland, and all the bands are out on the street, it's one of the great summer nights in Maine. Absolutely. And it's all centered around the water. Absolutely. Well, let me, in just a couple of minutes, let's get off of oil for a minute. What's the season look like? Very positive. We're If the uh, winter, that this, this is assumes that the winter ever lets go, right? We're hoping, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So, no, I think things are looking very positive for the summer. We're, of course, the big challenge that's been a challenge for a couple of years has been hiring. It's great to have low unemployment, but particularly for seasonal businesses, it's a challenge to staff up to the level that you might like to. But in some sense, that's a good problem to have. But again, it's something that we continue to try to address to help businesses be as successful as they possibly can be. But What's driving that is significant interest from people wanting to visit here, which is wonderful, and we certainly are very positively anticipating another good summer here in the Mid-Coast. Well, you should have been down here this week where we had about two inches of snow and the city just collapsed. Schools were closed. (laughs) The government was closed. I'm proud to say Congress stayed in session during the storm. The government was literally closed. The streets were bare of cars. By the way, the streets never were really covered with snow, but cab drivers charged double. They thought they were. They were afraid right. they would be. <laughs> Cab drivers started, you know, charging double. And for a main person, it's uh, it's kind of hilarious to see. Right. Well, we're uh, obviously well prepared in Maine and particularly here in Midcoast with Fisher Plows right here. Uh, there's plenty of plows to go around, so we don't have an issue with that. <laughs> That's right. And, and we, we like those winter storms because we want Fisher Plow to keep making those plows. Absolutely. Well, Tom, I really appreciate your taking this time. And I think we're going to watch this process as it goes forward. I suspect there may be some more hearings. And as Sheldon Whitehouse mentioned, it may not go anywhere just because of economics, just because the costs, you ask any lobsterman, it's a tough place to work. And uh, 
Correct. think the costs of, of doing this may make it unfeasible regardless. But I'm with you. I, I think this would be not a good idea for Maine, and we can do very well. And we're going to create new jobs. New jobs are coming in aquaculture, we know, up in Belfast and Bucksport. There mm-hmm. are some new proposals there. There's more lobster processing going on now in Maine. There's a lot going on and a lot that we don't want to put at risk. Absolutely. So we appreciate your work on that, and I appreciate the opportunity to join you today. Tom, great to be with you, and I'll look forward to seeing you this summer at the Blues Festival and maybe the Lobster Festival. Who knows? We'll be around. We'll look forward to it. Great. Thanks very much, Tom. Great to be with you. And thank you for joining us on Inside Maine. Today, we've been talking about offshore oil drilling. It doesn't seem to be going too far, but uh, we're going to keep an eye on it. And I want to thank again Tom Pico and Sheldon Whitehouse for joining me. See you next time and have a great Maine day. Thank you.